Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 303 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a conversation with regular contributor, our newly dubbed resident politico, union leader, member of the Pennsylvania Democratic State Committee, and chair of its progressive caucus, Dwayne Heisler. Dwayne and I talk about how beautiful Harrisburg is as a capital city, about inaugurations and promises, ideals and realities, about legalizing marijuana, about family and the Rural Bill of Rights, about the disease in our democracy. Also, we discuss indivisible on offense. And, of course, we discuss the late, great Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King's views on labor. A great conversation with Dwayne Heisler today on the program. We also have an EW essay titled Champagne and a humorous essay written for the New Yorker magazine by Teddy Wayne titled Carterism and a poem called C'est la vie. And as is always the case, all of this will be imbued with the energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 303 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours.
Champagne. Another snow event is coming to my neck of the woods. I stopped by Ollie's on my way home after finishing an algebra class for the winter session. I picked up a bag of rock salt. There were a couple of choices, 20 pounds for $3.99 or 10 pounds for $8.99. It is not brain surgery, though I started to be drawn into the blurbs on each bag, trying to ascertain if I was indeed making the best selection. I guess the effect on the natural environment, neighborhood pets and children, should be a consideration. I picked up a new cushy dog bed for Marquez, too. They did not have any snow shovels. As I was exiting the merchandise outpost, a man, a decade or two older than me, offered to assist my movement by taking the cart I used back to the cart line area. I said, Thank you, sir. He said, I was an enlisted man, not an officer. I responded after a short, somewhat perplexed pause. Thank you anyway. I immediately wondered why I chose to use that string of words. I walked to my car through a brisk, steady breeze and flurries of snow. As I drove through the parking lot thinking about a snow shovel, about that man, and if I should pick up a hoagie or if instead I should make a sandwich at home, I smelled the gasoline in the two-gallon container on the floor of the passenger side of the car that I filled earlier to use for the snow thrower. I might need tobacco for my pipe. There's a bottle of champagne in the refrigerator.
Heisler, is that you? Yes, this is he. All right. right. Nice to uh, hear your voice again here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. It's uh, a pleasure to have you on. Uh, For those of you who haven't heard Dwayne on the program before, he's been on several times, and uh, I am sure he's going to be on several times more. He is one of our regular contributors. I like to call him our, I'm giving you a a moniker now, you're our resident politico. Oh, wow. I've really moved up in the world. (laughs) Thank you, Lawrence. No problem. Uh, He's a regular contributor, as I mentioned. He's a union leader. Uh, He's a Democratic State Committee member. And I believe uh, the chair of the Progressive Caucus of the Democratic Committee in Pennsylvania. That Uh, is correct. Yes. You just came back from the inauguration of Governor Tom Wolfe, his second term. And we're going to talk to you a bit about your experience there and uh, we're going to discuss disillusionment with government, and maybe mm. um, we'll talk about Dr. King as well, given that as we speak today, it's a, uh, just a, a bit over, under a week before we celebrate that great American, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the Reverend Doctor, Dr. Reverend. I don't know which one should go first, but anyway, it's, a, it's great to have you on this show. Tell us about the inauguration. How was it? Well, thank you. Um, I had been to the one four years ago, and um, I was thinking about that on my drive down. I'm about an hour and a half away from Harrisburg, and uh, when I got up, it was pretty cold. It was in the 20s, and uh, I I had bundled up to be ready because the inauguration of the governor is actually outdoors. The lieutenant governor is in the Senate chambers in uh, Harrisburg at the Capitol. So, um, but it was it was one of those really cold mornings, but the sun was out, so you can feel that beating on your face, which was nice. And um, I think that just kind of like set the tone for me. Like I, I felt that it was a really great day, and all I had to do was think for one second what the alternative might have been, and I knew what a great day it really was. Um, so I, I got down there in the morning, got my uh, tickets to um, to go. You know, you have to get through security and so forth. And by the way. If any of our listeners happen to find their way into Harrisburg or going through Harrisburg, the state capitol is really a building they should see. Um, It has um, wonderful artwork in it. In fact, the Senate chambers have some incredible murals that took years uh, to to put up. Uh, it was a woman uh, artist who I think won one of the first artistic awards in the country, and it was for that work in the Senate. But anyway, um, it's a great capital to see. It's uh, it's it's beautiful. Um, and so uh, I went to. I got there early enough that I could go see Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman get sworn into office in the Senate chambers. 
And um, I'd never been to that ceremony before. And one thing I didn't realize was they had this team of escorts of, of, I think it was three senators, that when the time called, they left the Senate chambers, went to get the governor, the lieutenant governor, rather, and escort him into the chamber. Uh, and then he and his family were there. Um, and uh, he was sworn into office. And probably one of the most remarkable things about that was the fact he was dressed in a suit and wearing a tie. Uh, John Fetterman is not known for doing that. Um, I, I've known John for years. Um, he ran for the Senate a few years back, and um, I knew him through state committee, uh, former mayor of uh, Braddock, Pennsylvania. And he's a very uh, large, imposing man and, um, and you know, doesn't like to get hung up with, with uh, ties around his neck and things like that. Uh, so he was um, looking quite sharp at that event. Would you say he's is he uh, pretty much on in the same on the same place of the political spectrum as Governor Wolf? Is he? Well, that's really interesting. Um, I would say first of all, I think they make an excellent team. Um, uh, I would say that John probably is a little bit more progressive leaning than perhaps Wolf. Although when you look at the things that Governor Wolf has done, um, he he always puts forth a very progressive agenda each year. Um, and you can tell that because a lot of that gets reflected in his budget. But Lawrence, since you mentioned that, something that was interesting was um, just a week or two ago, Governor Wolf mentioned the idea that maybe we should be looking at um, legalizing marijuana. Recreational. Thought, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I hate to use the word recreational just because. I've read some books recently and it kind of challenges my thought of what recreational is. Like if you interview people who smoke smoke pot on a regular basis, the, you ask them why and they're like, well, after work, it, it kind of helps me to relax. I have a very stressful job. And, and you start hearing like they, uh, why they do it. And you, I, I don't want to say that, like go to your, like, like, um, give up exercising and go smoke pot because it's medicinal, you know, but I, I think it challenges what recreational really is. If people are using it for relaxation, they're using it to like get rid of stress in their life. I think we know that like reducing stress in your life has good, um, physical outcomes for you. Um, but anyway, the fact that Wolf would say that I thought, wow, something has happened here. And I would not be surprised if it was, uh, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who has been very much pro um, legalization of marijuana, might have they might have had a conversation. You know, they've been running together for office, and and um, I, I I think that that uh, Lieutenant Governor Governor Fetterman will be um, a wonderful influence in terms of the values that uh, progressive individuals have within the state of Pennsylvania. And you think uh, Governor Wolf will indeed include him in in the in the uh conversations and uh, will take his his ideas into consideration absolutely i think governor wolf is um i think he's really interesting he you know he's a businessman um he uh comes from uh you know that kind of of uh background where you know as a ceo of a company um that that you know that is very much pro worker and and works with workers is listening to those advisors around him um, he is very, um, I, I would say very thoughtful, um, and, and tends to try to, he, he kind of reminds me of a sponge. Whenever I see him, he just is soaking so much in, uh, and, and then, uh, you know, considers these things and, and moves forward. He's, um, he seems very pragmatic to me. 
Um, and um, it, 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 he's not the most exciting individual, to be honest with you. You know, you won't see him jumping up and down for anything. But but what he does is actually very exciting. Um, you know, even when it came down to, I don't know if you saw during the campaign, Lawrence, but they had the, the Libres law, Libres law, which was a law that Governor Wolf championed um, about Libre, who's his dog, and it was being abused. And so they um, they managed to pass um, some really strict laws against animal abuse. And the commercial for it was like, great, he looks so personable. But when I looked at the press on it, and um, you know, <laughs> even if you tied a dog around his neck, it makes it hard for him to be like, <laughs> he just, he's just not that kind of guy. Like he just works behind the scenes. He's very pragmatic and um, not, not doesn't ever seem to be very excitable. Um, I it's, guess. And that's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? As a politician to, to tr sort of inspire the electorate to support right. you. I, right. And so I really think it's about what he did. And and if I fast forward a little bit, so to the program where he went into the inauguration, um, first of all, Rabbi Jeffrey Myers was there. If You may recall him from the Tree of Life mm -hmm. in uh, Pittsburgh. Yep. He gave the uh, invocation. And then Wolf started talking. And the first thing he started talking about was family. And I think this is so important because I had worked for quite some time through the uh, rural caucus um, of the uh, Pennsylvania Democratic State Committee uh, about a rural bill of rights. And one of the things that came out of um, our kind of listening tour uh, with people all across the state was the fear that families have in rural Pennsylvania, and I believe rural America, that when their kids grow up, they're going to leave. They have to leave because they can't stay where they are. They have to go somewhere else to make a living and to make something of themselves, and they leave. And, and I think that that's a horrible thing. And he actually, that's how he started his speech. He started talking about how proud he was that, that, um, that his kid was coming back to Pennsylvania. And, um, and he started talking about the idea of why people were leaving and then how proud he was that, you know, they were able to secure 200,000 new good paying jobs in the state, how they were able to improve 20,000 miles of roadway and restore 1900 bridges, how he put $1 billion. Now, this is over four years, not, you know. We don't, Pennsylvania doesn't have that kind of money. No. But $1 billion back into the public schools, um, how he turned, or uh, actually working with, and this gets into your, you know, bad government and dismay over government, working with the Republican-controlled House and Senate, they were able to turn a deficit into a surplus in Pennsylvania. That's not easy to do these days. Um, you know, and he got incredible cheers when he talked about health care, because with the expansion of Medicaid, that mean that meant that 720,000 more people in our state were able to get insured for health care. That's huge. That's monstrous, you know, that we're able and still show a a surplus, you know, on top of that. And, and so I think one of his point was that that he was trying to make in terms of reaching out to the Republican House and the Republican Senate was that Pennsylvania is not like Washington, like he has faith and he believes that we can get things done. And by kind of highlighting these things, you know, they're there's nothing that breeds success like success. And um, so, but the real fight will be in February when we see the budget coming up and how we kind of are able to navigate through that. But that kind of like tied it together for me, Lawrence, the idea of the frustration that people have with government, um, the idea that, that, that 
families, you know, many times have to face the fact that their kids are going to move far away from them because there's no opportunity for them in their home communities. And um, the sunshine uh, on the cold day kind of uh, for me. And, and, and I just felt that throughout the day. Uh, That's wonderful. And that nice analogy. Uh, the, the, the sunshine, I guess. Yeah. The, the, the inauguration would be a point in time of, of, you know, ideology and rhetoric. And uh, it's, it's an excitement uh, filled event and a lot of celebration of what has transpired and what we're hoping to do in the future. But then you look at what is actually going to occur. That might be a bit different, you know, and again, looking at our, our Congress, our state house and uh, Senate there, it's Republican. That's right. Although there were incredible inroads that were made in the 2018 election, and by the way, those inroads were really hard fought. You know, you saw the Democratic Party come back alive. There was a huge outreach to um, rural Pennsylvania. All of the um, various groups that were fighting, uh, the women's group, the indivisible groups, the progressive organizations, the you name it, they were out there. Um, you know, I went to a party at SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, yesterday at about 4.30, and they were celebrating the fact that as an organization, they knocked on over 400 thousand doors wow. i mean who, who does that right, right. four hundred thousand doors and it's because their very livelihood was on the line you know before i kind of said you know just take a moment and think of what the alternative was um the person who was running against wolf made it very clear that he was anti-union and specifically anti-seiu and so they they were they were called into action because they were fighting for their families they were fighting for their jobs they were fighting for the idea that collectively we can actually do better and make our communities better um, well that yeah. the, the republican candidate too if i if i'm recalling correctly he was a little nuts too i, I believe wasn't he i mean Oh my gosh. I mean, he was just threatening to hit people and stomp on them or whatever. Yeah. He was going to stomp on Wolf's neck with his golf cleats. Yeah, there it is. I knew golf had something to do with it too. Yeah. Now, first of all, what bad framing? Like if you're trying to reach people, you don't talk (laughs) about your golf cleats, right? I mean, seriously, I'm sure he has a ton of them in his closet because he caters to like corporations and all that stuff because he's against getting rid of the Delaware loophole. Um, He's against actually uh, the idea that Pennsylvania should have a shale tax. We're the only state in the whole country that doesn't have a shale tax. He acts as if the state doesn't need any money. And in fact, he said, you know, the, the state would be better off without if we fired a few teachers, you know, if we weren't able to hire. Well, that wasn't exactly it. If we weren't able to hire some teachers, they wouldn't be missed. Wait, and you know it's it's funny. Uh, it was not funny, but l- last night I went to uh, see Vice with my son. Uh, you know the pro- the the movie about Dick Cheney, and, yeah. And it's the same mentality that you just described, and, but in in this case, he unlike the Republican candidate who shall remain nameless uh, for governor of Pennsylvania, um, Cheney was successful. And uh, in, in, in turning us around and bamboozling us into cutting uh, a lot of what is most important for a healthy uh, society, like education and infrastructure and social programs that take care of the needs of individuals, and instead had us work on uh, fear, uh, from fear, and, and, uh, and, and getting us into war that just filled his pockets and his friends' pockets with money and the like. And I'm afraid still... 
and this goes back to the disillusionment uh, about government, that those sorts of impulses and influences are still prevalent in in Washington, in state houses across the continent. Uh, And we are very, very um, susceptible as everyday people to them to that yeah, sort of manip- manipulation. Yeah, I think it's like a disease in our democracy. I kind of think of it like that. And fear-mongering is like one of the symptoms. Like, And I think that like this whole border crisis, manufactured border crisis and, and immigration issue that we have and have had for years is, is a perfect example of it. Like I would call it, like Trump has border security personality disorder, <laughs> like something like that. And like, so fear mongering is one of those, those symptoms of it. Another one would be like just the flat out inability to tell the truth. They're always conflating like statistics in with like, um, it, like they'll say, oh yeah, there's all of these um, drugs that come across and then they won't say the Southern border because they're not coming across the Southern border. They're coming through our airports and through other ports of entry and things like that. You know, they're not being, you know, that's not the, that's not where we have our real problem. The, so the, oh, and then there's of course the, the huge, you know, uh, the, the huge lie of the uh, Mexico will pay for it, you know, and uh, that, that whole bit. I mean, it's just, it's just filled with it. And then maybe another one, one, like another symptom is putting politics above security you know like the the whole idea that that our government workers you know who are actually like border agents and things like that are on strike now and we're doing this because we need border agents to be at the border um or uh the idea of um we had a, a local our local um congressman dan muser actually write in and talk about to the local newspapers about um basically that um uh, you know, he was in support of the wall and the whole thing. And I remember during the primary, uh, a question was asked, and this is pretty remarkable, Lawrence. Um, if you had a choice of putting billions of dollars into the wall or actually having those billions of dollars come to the district, your district, you know, the counties like Columbia County, your district, which would you do? He made the argument that it should go for the wall. Now, I can't even imagine what a billion, one billion dollars would do in this county in central Pennsylvania. It would be amazing, an amazing impact. Yeah, it's, you know, like, are you really arguing, is your job, were you elected to fight for Donald Trump or maybe the hardworking people in Columbia County that are concerned about good paying jobs and affordable health care, but yet you're going on this, you know, demagoguery kind of platform um it's just i yeah so I, I do you think there's any frustration you know like <laughs> i can i can sense it yes come on i can definitely sense some frustration and and you're into it you're into these things so you're you're willing to roll up your sleeves and figure it out and push back where most people i would i would think are not so into it so they throw their arms up and and walk away disengage and maybe just you know, I guess react to something that does compel them. And oftentimes fear compels or, you know, talk of making more money or having money taken away from you. And therein goes the manipulation once again, or, you know, we're just not either engaged or we're easily distracted from what is, what is actually uh, important. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I I think there's a kind of a narrative in rural America, not just rural Pennsylvania. I'm sure we're not alone, but it, it seems to manifest itself mostly in rural areas that 
somehow someone has gotten in front of them, like they have cheated in line. Like I'm a hardworking person, but look at this um, immigrant who is trying to come across here and get our money and take our jobs or whatever it might be, right? Or, um, you know, or look at the freeloader on um, public assistance when I'm working hard here and trying to earn what I did. Or they should speak our language because I had to learn the language. Like this, uh, somehow getting ahead or skipping ahead or being in line like that. And that's a narrative that I think conservatives really play upon of, of the frustration that people be and then channeling it into the other channeling it into someone from the outside. And it could even be those people in the city, like look at all the money that the the city of Philadelphia gets for their schools, from our taxes are paying for their schools. When when you actually look at the dollars that follow them, Lawrence, the city of Philadelphia pays more for rural schools than we pay for theirs, um, which is pretty right. remarkable. Um, uh, and so I, I hear what you're saying, and it makes me think of something else, um, the fight ahead like looking forward what's going on and um, I know that there are a lot of groups now that are gearing up because of the gains which have been made uh, the progressive gains that have been made uh, in the Democratic Party and in our legislature in fact I, maybe some of your listeners are aware of uh, Indivisible of course but the they put out two new guides which are incredibly helpful you are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. The um, Indivisible on Offense, which talks about now what do we do on a national level that we have, uh, we have uh, a progressive agenda in the House. You know, we have Democrats in control of the House, that all three branches of government are not owned by the Republican Party. And the other guide, which is really helpful, Lawrence, is Indivisible State, which talks about what you can do in your home state and what a difference that makes. And it's and it really um, tells a different story of what to do when your state is controlled by the Democrats or when your state is controlled by the Republicans or like in Pennsylvania, our state, where we have mixed government, where we have you know a, a Democratic uh, governor, but yet the houses are very firmly controlled by the Republicans. How do you proceed with an agenda as someone who's concerned about progressive values in your community when that's the mixture that's that we find in government? And how, how would uh, one get their hands on one of these guides? Are they easily downloadable? Oh, yes, absolutely. PDFs. All you have to do is go to, um, uh, just if you type in Indivisible on Offense, you'll find the PDF for them. Um, very easy or Indivisible. On, and once you find that one, the other one will be not far behind it. And I know um, there's, there's going to be a lot getting out. I put together a PowerPoint on one. And I'm giving several presentations which are scheduled for that. I know one's coming up, for example, in Pittsburgh um, for the um, the Progressive Summit that's happening out there in um, in February, I think. Yeah, in February. And also, um, it's going to be in March. Uh, the Pennsylvania, this is interesting, Pennsylvania Democratic State Committee is actually allowing Indivisible to come in, and I'm doing a joint presentation with them on Indivisible on Offense to look at the um, the work that they've done so that the party understands what that what's going on in the uh, in the progressive world. Excellent. Yeah, that, that's that's very, very uh, hopeful for, for me as a progressive myself. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, men and women, and all uh, other types of individuals, 
I don't want to go uh, making it all binary. Uh, we have Dwayne Heisler here on the program. He is a regular contributor to Troubadours and Rock on Tours. He's our resident politico. We just gave him that moniker today. I think he's okay with it. Uh, <laughs> he's a union leader, and he's a uh, member of the Democratic State Committee here in Pennsylvania and chair of its Progressive Caucus. Now, you uh, are in Columbia County. Give some folks, uh, you know, we have people listening in Washington State, for example. Give them a sense of where Columbia County is in uh, the Commonwealth. Right. Uh, so Columbia County is one of the smallest counties in the state of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has a lot of counties, unlike other states um, out west especially. And um, probably the easiest way, if you're not familiar with that, is thinking about Route 80, which cuts right across our whole country. Um, we're about three hours outside of New York City driving west. Um, so one of those, ex actually, I think we might kind of had three exits off of 80, which makes us sound like a booming metropolis, but of course we're not. Um, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, so it's off of 80. So it's um, a pretty much directly north of Harrisburg, our state capital. Um, so it, uh, about an hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes north of Harrisburg and kind of in between the metro area of like Wilkes-Barre, Scranton and um, maybe Williamsport, like in the middle of that, but a little bit further south. So we're kind of out of the Poconos, um, just a little bit out of the Poconos, a little bit further west. So we're kind of uh, northeast PA, north central PA is um, is where we're located. And you're Our, you're originally from Brooklyn, though, right? Yes, yeah, so I was born in Brooklyn, I, North Seventh Street, uh, near um, Kent Avenue and uh, Bedford Avenue. It was the Polish section back then. Um, I went to PS seventeen. I went to a. Um, a a Ukrainian Catholic church for a while there. I have relatives in um, in Brooklyn, in uh, the Bronx, in uh, Manhattan, in Staten Island. Actually, quite a number of them in Staten Island. They moved to Staten Island in the 1970s, uh, kind of left Brooklyn and, and headed headed over there. So very familiar with New York. Uh, big shout out to the Big Apple. Yeah, we have our listeners there in Brooklyn at Radio Free Brooklyn. So good to have you on the show. And, you know, our, our time this go-around is just about up. I want to give you a couple of minutes, though, to reflect, as we said we would, on the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, if you would, in honor of his birthday. Yeah, absolutely. I think, isn't it the 51st, I think? I think last year was the 50th celebration for him. And... Um, uh, since um, since he was assassinated, I guess celebration and assassination don't really go well together. But something I'm thinking about right now, Lawrence, because of basically my work uh, for working people, are the things that that the Reverend had to say when it came to labor, because it was pretty vocal about labor. And I just pulled out a few quotes. I know we don't have very much time, but one of them was was that the labor movement was the principal force that transformed misery and despair into hope and progress. That's a pretty strong statement when you think about it. And an, another thing he said was, our needs are identical with labor needs. Decent wages, fair working conditions, livable housing, old age security, health and welfare measures, uh, conditions in which families can grow, have education for their children, and respect in their community. And, and to have those words come from him about labor and that part of it, I, I think, are very meaningful. And another one that he said was, um, all labor that uplifts humanity has dignity and importance and should be undertaken with painstaking excellence. And uh, the final one that I thought I'd share with you um, is that 
history is a great teacher. Now, everybody knows that la the labor movement did not diminish the strength of the nation, but enlarge it by raising the living standards of millions Labor miraculously created a market for industry and lifted the whole nation to undreamed levels of production. Um, those that attack labor forget these simple truths, but history remembers them. Dr. King, boy, I, I think we can use another Dr. King if that's possible. Hell yes. Hell yes. Absolutely. Well, sir, thank you for all you're doing. You do great work, and it's, it's wonderful to have you on the program. Uh, I look forward to talking with you again very soon. Great. Uh, thank you. It's always a pleasure, Lawrence. Good luck. Bye-bye. Bye. Now a little humor from the January 14th edition of the New Yorker magazine. This is written by Teddy Wayne, and it's titled Carterism. After the 1976 presidential election, James E. Carter Jr. was not content with mere victory. The bombastic peanut farming mogul turned politician would pace the Lincoln bedroom into the wee hours, sending telegrams in which he using arbitrary capitalizations and quotation marks, raged against geriatric Gerald Ford. Observers speculated that Carter was attempting to discredit his vanquished opponent because he did not have a fulsome mandate, having won only 50.1% of the popular vote. Or perhaps it was simply his instinct to lash out when he was alone. His wife, Rosalind, had bucked tradition by initially staying behind in Atlanta 
with her young daughter Amy, much to the curiosity of Americans, who wondered if theirs might be a marriage of convenience. Let Carter be Carter, was the common refrain among the president's advisors, who tried to fill his time with meetings to thwart his insatiable telegram habit. But they were uncertain how to respond in person to his monomaniacal attacks on Ford. Do you think I should put Gerald in jail? Carter asked his advisors each day. I can do that, right? Send someone who lost the election and no longer had any official power to prison just because I feel like it? Sure, they told him, but suggested that maybe he should first tackle stagflation and the oil crisis. They provided him with clippings of newspaper headlines that were tailored to his short attention span and limited grasp of issues other than peanut farming. This is the best economic shape America's ever been in, and it's all because of Carter, the president growled in his harsh, brash Georgia accent. Fraudulent Fourth Estate Reportage! Instead of addressing the country's pressing issues, Carter held a succession of rallies at which he wistfully recalled his election night victory and bragged about his business acumen. Although, to those in peanut circles, he was mostly considered a joke, especially after the airing of his radio game show, The Farmhand. And, as his term wore on, mounting evidence suggested that his campaign had colluded with the peanut industry to get him elected. In a leaked telegram from the previous year, an emissary associated with the Planters Company had proposed a clandestine meeting to Amy Carter, promising, quote, dirt on Ford. If it's what you say, I love it especially later in the summer, the eight-year-old had replied in a message written with crayon on construction paper. He was offering us soil on top of Ford pickups for our farm, the president explained. Everyone knows that summer is the best time to plant peanuts. Besides, my daughter is new to politics. She's just a girl, really. Amy Carter said, I went to the meeting and the guy immediately began rambling on nonsensically about fertilizer and harvesting cycles. I lost interest and left after 20 minutes. The whole thing is a big nothing legume. Notwithstanding all of this, Democratic leaders continued to support the president because they felt that they had a chance to pass a once-in-a-generation peanut subsidy bill. The subsidy cleared the Senate to the delight of wealthy peanut farm owners, including Carter. The president had ostensibly divested himself of his family farm, but let his two eldest sons run it and, despite the glaring ethics issues, hosted foreign dignitaries there for lavish dinners, at which Carter routinely ate two pieces of peanut brittle and everyone else got one. Conservative media outlets made puns about the bill's dishonest, quote, shell game qualities and the mere peanuts, quote unquote, that independent farmers would accrue. But their arguments fell on deaf ears among Carter supporters. They maintained their steadfast admiration for the president, who had once boasted that he would not lose any voters even if he shot somebody on Main Street in his hometown of Plains, Georgia. After Carter's inexplicable kowtowing to a murderous Nigerian peanut overlord, a special counsel was appointed. Democrats attempted to discredit the investigation, while Republicans sought impeachment but also fretted about the terrifying dangers of a Walter Mondale presidency. As the special counsel closed in, the president's 
faithful supporters still attended his rallies, at which he continued to lead them in anti-Ford chants. Confine him to a federal penitentiary, Carter screamed, in the panicked tone of a guilty man trying to divert attention from his crimes. Confine him to a federal penitentiary, he repeated, night after night, whipping the crowd into a frenzy. Though attendees could not say exactly what the rationale was for imprisoning Ford, or why they hated him so much, or even why they cultishly worshipped a leader whose policies were directly hurting them, and who was, in new ways every day, revealing himself to be a toxic ass beep. Also, Carter wore clownishly long cardigans. La vie. An adult pleasures boutique next to a store that sells fireworks, an empty space that once was a book exchange, an Italian-Irish woman with an Albanese immigrant waiting for a pedicure and Brazilian wax, 
An out-of-work fast food junkie wearing a Statue of Liberty outfit is carrying a torch so that you might formalize your local, state, and federal tax. The school district is as bankrupt as does appear to be the mayor's chance at being one with integrity, like you and me. C'est la vie. Sometimes I feel so happy Sometimes I feel so sad Sometimes I feel so happy But mostly you just make me mad Baby, you just make me mad Linger on Your pale blue eyes Linger on As my mountaintop Thought of you as my peak Thought of you as everything I've had but couldn't keep I've had but couldn't keep Linger on Thank you. 
said money is like us in time It lies but can't stand up Down for you is up Linger on You pay Russia or any totalitarian country. Maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech somewhere I read of the freedom of press somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right and so just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. 
So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. We will have to stand before the God of history. And we will talk in terms of things we've done. It seems that I can hear the God of history saying, that was not enough. But I was hungry, and you fed me not. And there you have it, episode 303 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our regular contributor and resident politico, Dwayne Heisler. I'd like to thank writer Teddy Wayne and these musical artists. Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs, Anti-Flag, Vampire Weekend, Brett Nooski, Amanda Shires, The Velvet Underground, and I'd like to thank deeply Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King, And, of course, all of you for listening. Thanks so much. Truly appreciate it. Until next week, let's enjoy this one. Take care.